Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We live in a happier, healthier society. If every single awesome brain that wants to participate in it is allowed to succeed or fail on their own terms. Hi, this is Christopher Triumph saying hello and welcome to the 29th episode of Varvet International. And we do have a new sponsor. I'm happy to present a personal fashion favorite of mine, Uniforms for the Dedicated. Uniforms for the Dedicated is a Swedish menswear brand that does casual tailoring with fabrics based on recycled cashmere. Did you get that? It's recycled. That means that I can look good with a clear conscience. Check their very stylish clothes out at www.uniformsforthededicated.com as well as in department stores across Europe and Asia. I'll take that web address again. That's uniformsforthededicated.com all in one word. Thank you, Uniforms for the Dedicated. Today's guest is the extremely intelligent, extremely political, extremely funny comedian Liz Winstead. And even though she is a big name in American comedy, I mean she has over a hundred thousand followers on Twitter, in a way her work is more famous than she is. Winstead was one of the creators of The Daily Show, the show that Jon Stewart has been hosting for the last 16 years and is about to retire from. We'll soon discuss why Liz didn't take that job in the first place when it premiered almost 20 years ago on Comedy Central. Liz was also a panelist on Politically Incorrect, the TV show mentioned in Varvet 24 as Bill Maher was the guest of that episode. By the way, I hung out with Bill Maher the other day as he was in Stockholm to do his show. It was a great show. I recommend seeing him if he comes back to Europe or if you can see him in the US, of course. Anyway, Bill Maher was the host of uh, Politically Incorrect. Yes, that's where I was at. And Liz Winstead has been in many shows like that, as her satirical humor and sharp comedic voice sits well in those environments, of course. A few years back, she wrote a memoir called Liz Free or Die, a really funny book about her life. And if you are listening through the Acast app, you can now check your phone to explore that book a bit further. And the interview you'll hear in a moment was recorded some time ago in a New York hotel room. So, without further ado, roll the tape, please. How are you today? I'm great. 
That's nice to hear. Yeah, a little frazzled because of the fire on the subway. But in New York, sometimes it's just like you get so cynical about anything that happens on the train. It's like fire on the train. All right. I mean, I remember going to a dinner party once and a friend came in 20 minutes late because there was a dead body on the subway. And she walked in, she said, I'm so sorry I'm late, dead body on the subway. And instead of everyone being horrified, they were like, oh, yeah, dead body, hate that, hate that. <laughs> it's like, is that what we've become in New York? I think it might be. Was the dead body in the train or was it on, yeah. Okay. In the train. Like, okay. it, it had been riding around. All right. And then finally someone thought to, I don't even know how long it took a New Yorker to pay attention to see that there was a dead human being on the train. It could have been... Could have been hours that body was just or traveling or weeks. Yeah. I think weeks there would have been a, a, a distinct smell. smell. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Have you ever smelled uh death? Yes. Like that. Yeah. I've smelled not decomposition, but I've been with someone who's died. So I I have experienced death and watched someone turn from life to that yellowed sort of person you become when there's no longer life in your body. It's kind of crazy. Why did you do that? Was it a relative? Yeah, a relative. Okay. My father, yeah. All right. And it, you think you can't deal, but it turns out you can. Yeah. It turns out you can. The process of death is not sometimes very forgiving. And so when you see someone struggling through death, there's a term death rattle, which I really never knew what it meant. And when you experience it, you see it. And it's, I think it really is, the human body's kind of amazing. And when it has you passed through, you really want someone to just be at peace. And having watching them go through that, you're kind of like, you go. Like, yeah. we're happy that you're going because I don't want you to be in this place anymore. So it's all part of the process. I kind of liked it. I've understood that it can go both ways, that people can be at peace with death as well. Sort of welcoming it or fighting it. Yeah, I think so. I think it depends on, you know, just your acceptance of your life. Yeah. And if you've come to terms with what death means to you. Do you think there's a God? Do you think you just disappear? Were you satisfied with your life on Earth? Do you have unfinished business? You know, I think not having unfinished business is probably a super good idea, no yeah. matter what you believe. Go through life with you know, settling as much as you can. Do you think you're going to be a struggler or a at peace person? I think, I think I'll be at peace. I think that I'll be at peace. I feel like I've made enough people laugh. I fight pretty hard to make sure that people can carry on with their lives in a way that makes sense for them. I try to be a voice for people who don't have one. So... It's not like I'm just sitting around on my fat ass being selfish. So I hope I've done... You can never do enough, but I hope I've at least dedicated some time to make people's lives better. I think you actually really, really do um, a difference. I hope so. You know, sometimes you can tell in small ways, and it's sometimes it's not the ways you think. Sometimes you're... When my mom died, it was different than when my father died. I guess, I don't know... She was more religious. She had more, talked more about what she wanted. And she also was in a hospice situation for longer than my dad. My dad went kind of quickly. And so in the course of going through it, I decided that I would live tweet 
my emotions and experiences as I was feeling them. When she was taking a nap, I would I would put something out there. And I got at least 500 people saying, you know, I'm going through this by myself as well. And I feel like there's somebody going through it with me when I never thought I would have that opportunity. So, And I was just doing it for sort of to honor my mom and I would tell a story about her or a memory or a feeling I was having as I as she's you know moved into all these different phases of dying. And I didn't realize you know, I didn't realize how many people don't have anybody to share it with. I have five siblings, I was lucky. Yeah. So that was kinda cool. And then just women who, you know, in America, reproductive justice is still back in the nineteen fifties. And so if a woman needs to have an abortion, she has to do so much reassessment to not dive into a shame spiral that society puts on her so that the work that my organization, Lady Parts Justice, does when we bring humor and speak truth to power on telling women that we care more about their destiny than an unattended pregnancy and we want her to feel like her decision's okay and it doesn't define her and she should just have it and move on and... So that I've had women write me on Facebook and say thanks. I, again, people sit with that shit all by themselves and alone. And so when someone's out there in the universe speaking to them, I think it. I think it does do some good. Maybe I should change some lives as well. Well, it, it looks like, like you feeling. are having some good people on your podcast, though. You're bringing really cool voices to people. I think that's a really big deal. Okay, thank you. I mean, pro- really providing providing a place because you know. Corporate media is not going to do it. You know, mainstream media is not going to do it. So for you to do a podcast that features people who are doing really cool work, you are. So stop it. Thank you. And I also had sort of a feminist awakening in the beginning of my Swedish version of this podcast that I just started doing it. And after a while, it was like, wait a minute, it's just men. And I had uh, some some women come over and... uh, I sort of learned the hard way that that you should start by booking the the hard ones. Yeah. And if you do that, it's going to be easier later on. And I actually think that in 2014, I th- actually think that we had 26 women and 26 men. That's on the awesome. Swedish version. Yeah. Yeah, because it's amazing how you can look back and women. When we get angry, it's usually not frivolous. You know, it's usually for a reason. Yeah. And a lot of times it's simply because we don't feel like society looks at the issues of women's rights as human rights. They mm-hmm. separate them out. You know, oh, that's not interest. I'm not, a, you know, it's not of interest to me in the, in the bigger scope because it's a woman's issue. And it's like, well, right. But if women are not actually living as equals in the world, then it should be your problem. Of course, yeah. But it's really, it sounds simple, but it's amazing how that concept is either lost on people or even worse, threatening for some reason. It's like, why do you hate men? It's like, I don't. I don't fight for access to birth control because I want to have sex with people I hate. Okay. <laughs> that makes zero sense. So, yeah. How do we get more people on board? I think a movement... How do we get men on board? I think, well... I think, first of all, the fundamental, the fundamental idea that we live in a happier, healthier society if every single 
awesome brain that wants to participate in it is allowed to succeed or fail on their own terms, right? So that you remove the animosity of repression. And if you do that, then we're all happier. So if men could realize that all we want is a chance to fuck it up. All we want is that chance to fuck it up and have it be, if, if we do fuck it up, it's not going to be representative of all women. And maybe it won't even necessarily be representative of us. It's like one mistake in a series of things. But to be able to get to the table, interact with men, I think every... I, and, and I think it needs to be a movement that includes men. I think that it needs to be more than just reacting to crisis also. It has to be community. Yeah. I think that it has to be part of our lives that we put into it. You know, if we're going to gather with friends... Why not sometimes gather with friends to talk about the issues of of where we're at with with equality? Women don't get pregnant alone, so it's kind of a thing to remind men. You know, it's like no woman ever got pregnant from a vibrator. Turns out it takes two people, and so it should be something that you know men care about. And then you you expand it out into sexual violence on college campuses and just in life and. We pride ourselves a lot in America talking about how we train our daughters karate and we teach them how to be smart. And, and we don't put that much emphasis on, on teaching our men about what it means to be a good partner, what, what rape means when no means no. I know I think when young men come into their own sexual age, and women too, if they're not experienced and no one's really talked to them about what it all means, I think men think once a woman wants to be their sexual partner, that that's a permission slip, that anything goes, right? And whenever I hear these sort of anti-feminist men talking about how women are trying to police sex or it's going to take all the fun out of it if there's permission, I'm like, if you think that, you've never had interesting sex. Interesting sex is always negotiating. I like that more. No, I don't love that so much. Get off my hair. You know, like there's things that you're constantly talking about when you are exploring sex in a great way. So what I have to believe is these anti-feminist men really are horrible in bed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I kind of have to believe that's true. Mm. Because if they think negotiating is a bad thing, then they're not really that interesting in the sack. No. I heard something about... Was someone who quoted you when you sort of you drew a line between racism and anti-feminism and there are parallels aren't sure, there Sure absolutely yeah. yeah There are definitely parallels between sexism and racism but there I think they're different both involve I value you as lesser but they manifest themselves in different ways where you can be marginalized and felt to be needed felt to be portray- or, um, defined as somebody who needs protecting and and has a role in society to serve men as like a white woman in our society. Whereas, you know, the racism in people of color in America, it's very different because there is how society views young black men and boys, right? So that's one form of racism, how society views women of color, how society views Latinas, you know, Latina men. And so there's so many levels to the objectification of women of color sexually sexualizing 
them at a very young age, also kind of um, making them these fantasy creatures. And then with the assumptions that our society makes about black men and boys and the, and the over-policing and the incarceration rates, you look at them. And as we marched on Selma, you know, with the 50th anniversary and people marched across that bridge, highlighted by the death in, in Ferguson and the deaths in Ohio and the death in Staten Island and the recent deaths in Madison, Wisconsin, of unarmed young black men being gunned down by police, it shows how far we have to go. But to not address these things in a focused context does a disservice. You know, there's been a discussion here with the hashtags, all lives matter versus black lives matter. And I think we never, we never get to the root of things when we, every time somebody talks about issues of race, it seems like the power structure always wants to say, but, it, but everyone is oppressed and everyone gets screwed up. And it's like, yeah, but we're talking right now about what's happening to black lives in America. That's what we're, so let, can we please focus on that? And people get, like there's been quite, quite a lot of debates about, about why we can't focus on all people who are over-policed. And it's like, because it's not an equivalent. And because right now, as we're seeing you know, you wouldn't go to an AIDS rally and start talking about diabetes. You know, you would just focus on AIDS and that's what you would do. And then when, when we're talking about diabetes, we'll talk about that. So it's very interesting how um, it seems like we can be so, even on International Women's Day, you know, it seems like a lot of the tweets and the posts were incredible about really strong, amazing women in Syria or in Sudan or, you know, fighting against genital mutilation or trafficking of women and girls. and But when it comes to talking about what are we going to do here at home in America, everybody wants to run away from it and assume that Americans have somehow... We just pretend that it's not as bad here as it is other places, and it's bad. I had a friend uh, who wrote about uh, International Women's Day. It's a lot of talk about strong women, but International Women's Day is about weak women as well. It's about everybody's rights, sort of. And, and you don't have to be strong to be a part of that. No. And that's the whole thing. And I think it's about women who are left behind, women whose needs are forgotten, women who are on the margins, women who are vulnerable and still considered property and worse. And then it's about the women who tirelessly try to advocate for them and with them. Mm. And it's about everyday women who look outside of themselves a little more. Women who just make you... It's just about recognizing the power of women and sometimes the lack of power of women. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Do you think you will experience equality between gender in your lifetime? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that that would require a whole lot of people who are terrified to share power to have a gigantic awakening yeah. and share the power. I think what I will experience is a lot more people understanding that gender equality makes the world a better place. And as as young young girls and boys grow up, 
and they see the lines different and they don't look at gender the same way I have had that experienced. And as people who have been living in a culture striving for more gender equality start becoming bosses, you know, we start, I think we'll age out of it eventually. And not unlike the LGBTQ community where kids are now growing up with gay friends at a young age and it's not as stigmatized. And when we see bullying, we call it and we're supportive and it's a thing that we're concerned about. Eventually it just becomes, you know, just an intrinsic part of the fabric of society. I think, you know, it'll, we'll, we'll start getting closer to, to gender equality, but you know, it's kind of like, it's hard to even feel like there's equality when it's just now that we're seeing trans people start to come out safely. And so until the trans community is accepted, even if cis heterosexual or like, you know, cis lesbian women are finding an equal footing, we still have a lot of growth to make sure that like trans women and men men are also equals. And so I think there's always going to be a place of struggle in my lifetime but I think that it's opening up a lot of conversations indoors. And I feel kind of good about that. I think the internet does that. I think the internet, while some people will always just be disappointed in what all of us say and do, like there's people who just will never be satisfied and they're kind of these social justice warriors who police every last word you say. There are people who have never been considered in society who now can come together and have a voice on the internet. And I think that that's pretty cool because I think for a long time the power structure could just make these statements and laws and rules and there wasn't a coalition to challenge them on it so they thought it was fine and now there is and money can't no matter what even though rich people seem to constantly rule the world you can't stop the voices when there's more of us that don't have money and you know you can't stop those coalitions of people and the internet has really helped have those so you have to consider a lot of people which I do love there are uh, hundreds of things uh, we have to talk about can we, <laughs> can we start by going back to your uh, ancestry sure. you said that you're half Swedish I am half Swedish yeah okay. so how is your Swedish I have no Swedish I can speak zero Swedish okay yeah not even tuck or tuck fika I know what that is yeah fika is uh, having coffee having coffee and, and a pastry yeah exactly. at around four yeah <laughs> <laughs> that I know. Yeah. I was born and raised in Minnesota. My father is 100% Swedish. His parents came from Lund. Okay. That's a nice part of Sweden. Yeah. Yeah, so um a lot of Swedish Christmas huge. We had lutvisk and lefsa and the potato sausage and the whole nine yards and she has tomten all over our house and those, that horse that was a doll? Yeah, doll has. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's a Swedish explosion in my home. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, the traditions are there. And I think it's not surprising that the progressive Swedish views growing up in Minnesota, you know, that permeated from all of the people that settled there, the Scandinavians that settled there, really understood community and just prioritizing things in a way. I think a lot of it's just the winter I think we all understand that you can't survive a winter alone for the most part and so you have to be you have to offer yourself and you have to take help and 
once you allow that into your life, you understand the sort of more global aspect of giving and sharing and that self-sufficiency often takes other people. But you do know that uh, Swedes are like, we, we used to be world record holders of suicide. Yes, I know. Well, that's, I think, the weather, the yeah, darkness. Probably. So I know. And dentists are the number one occupation. Did you know that? Of suicides? So a Swedish dentist? Forget it. Okay, I didn't know. Yes. I know. What, is, what do you suppose that's about? Do you think it's about... Because I know if for, for me and my Swedish relatives, and I had to take a lot of therapy to break out of the holding my emotions in, not burdening anybody, you know, very stoic. Yeah. So I think stoicism, and I think those winters are long. And I think seasonal depression is something... Like that modern science is finally talking about in a real way. And when you have 10 minutes of sunlight for a period of time. Yeah, exactly. We had like two hours of, of sun in January. Yeah. I think. Two hours. Yeah. I mean, don't you have to take pills? Yeah. I, do you know how much D vitamin I put in myself? I right bet. Yeah. That's what they were telling me. I yeah. was like amazed. I have a friend. He, he told me that, uh, well, he eats, I think he eats 50,000 times what you're supposed to take, D-vitamin-wise. He says that it's changed his life. Well, so, and, yeah. and the thing that's interesting, too, is because of climate change and because of you know the ozone and all the stuff, people are using sunscreen more. And we used to naturally take in vitamin D from the sun. And in America, anyway, because we use so much sunscreen, because our environment's so messed up and we don't want to get like burned... We aren't taking in enough natural vitamin D, okay. and we're not supplementing it as much as we should. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. I know. Wild, right? Yeah. I tend to go to L.A. a lot. Nowadays, it's like it's crazy. It's like Williamsburg in Sweden, population-wise. You can't talk shit about anyone behind their back. Oh, really? Everybody knows English? Well, everybody are Swedish. Oh, everybody's in, in L.A. too? In L.A. too, yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. I know. Williamsburg is full of Swedes. We're taking over the place. What are you guys doing over here? I don't know. I'm not sure. It's cheaper. Well, no. Not anymore. The dollar is like super expensive now. Oh, it is? Yeah, it has something to do with the oil. I'm not sure about that. Did we fuck something up with our oil intake? Well, I think... I think it's the the oil price is plummeting. It has to do with with, uh, you're taking down Russia now. Yeah. And that has sort of made the dollar explode. Oh, so that's bad for Sweden. That's super bad for us, yeah. Yeah, because when I was there, I was there in 2013, yeah, and I could not believe how expensive it was. It was like an avocado cost $12. Yeah. Norway is even worse. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was intense. But what I liked about it was that... A Big Mac costs like $15. It should cost $30. And it should be banned. Very good. But I feel like what I loved about it was that I was invited to people's homes for dinner. Mm -hmm. And it was really lovely. It felt much more fun than going to restaurants and spending all that money and people cooking. And it was much more personal. And I felt like my experiences were much better. That's fantastic. I really loved it. And I walked everywhere. It was freezing. It was March. It's like me here. I walk everywhere. Yeah. In New York. Yeah. Yeah. You just get a good hat. Yeah. And good boots. Yeah. Which we have. I walked from 126th Street to 50th yesterday, but then I had to take a cab because I didn't, didn't want to be too tired today. Right. But it was a nice walk. 
I listen to Prince. <gasps> and that makes us going back to Minneapolis. Yeah. Where you, were you born and raised or just born? Born and raised. Okay. I moved at 25. And I was lucky enough. I am 53 years old. And so when Prince came onto the scene, it was right when I was in the scene. And Minneapolis is this really cool cultural phenomenon because in the 1980s there was a music explosion a comedy explosion and an explosion of incredible journalists David Carr the well-known New York Times journalist came up in that era Michelle Norris who is a very popular public radio commentator grew up at that time John Bow who's an incredible author all these really cool and music journalists so Prince would play these secret shows he would come to a club around 11 and then the club would close at one. But if you were in the club, you could stay. And he would play till like three in the morning, sometimes with a band, ah. sometimes solo. Yeah. But I probably saw Prince. I've probably seen Prince literally 50 times. Okay, cool. Yeah. And every time, amazing. Like, it's crazy how great Prince is. I just realized yesterday that I'm ready for him because I haven't understood him before now. Yeah, but he's great. It took me 40 years. Go back. Have you gone back? Well, I just listened uh, randomly on Spotify yesterday. Yeah. Go back and listen, because it's great. And what's so fascinating is that Prince and then The Replacements and Who's Who Do and The Jayhawks. So it's Americana music, straight-up punk rock music, funk, and indie pop all happening at the same time at the same club. Ah, okay. Yeah. They're they're all from Minneapolis. They're all from Minneapolis. And so there was this cool club called First Avenue, which the movie Purple Rain is shot in. And they had a main stage, and then they had a side room. And the side room was just where, like, every band you've ever seen that was punk rock, from Nirvana to, like, the Dead Kennedys, everybody played in that small room. And then Bigger Axe would play in the main room. Anybody from Tina Turner to Prince to the Waterboys, like, you name it. So, like, this panoply of, like, of just everything, up and coming. And it was, you would just every night go. You would just skip studying and you would go. And then comedy was happening and all this great comedy was happening with Louis Anderson and Joel Hodgson and and Jeff Cesario and Mystery Science Theater 3000. And and I popped out of there someplace and it was it was just crazy. And so we would all then for our day jobs, we were all trying to, struggle in our music and our art and our comedy we all worked at the same restaurant so we were constantly covering each other's shifts so that people could do gigs and then you were always on a guest list when you could be so it was kind of great because you always could see free shows it was great it was a really interesting creative time for sure is it still like that in i I mean is it still yeah it is still like that there's been second and third waves to come out of there because like then the hold steady came out of there. Now there's an incredible hip hop collective called Doom Tree with a woman named Dessa and POS and a band called Atmosphere, Brother Ali, incredible hip hop artists. And then Mitch Hedberg, a great comic, came yeah. out of there. Yeah. So yeah, it's just ever ever happening and I and I love that about it. It's a great place to go back to. I've never been. It's just like Sweden. It is, yeah. I mean it's it looks just like Sweden. Yeah. We have our winters aren't quite as with the dark light thing, but it's pretty pretty bad. But nothing like like you guys experience in January. The summers are beautiful. It's green and rolling hills and 
a lot of lakes and you know we don't have the beautiful sea and everything else but yeah it's great I advise anyone in Sweden to go to Minnesota and see it. Does it look like the movie slash TV series or movie turned TV series? Fargo? Yeah. Parts of it do. Parts of it are that flat part. Like when you like when I took the train, the train from Gothenburg to Stockholm, there was that interminable flatness. Yeah. That does exist. Yeah. But in this urban areas, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's like... It's like Stockholm. It's nice. I have to go. You do. Go in the summer. Why is there so much creativity? I think that... Do you think that the winters breed storytelling as an art form? Yeah. You know, you stay indoors, you invite friends over, you drink and you tell stories. And I do think that it does breed incredible storytelling, which then in turn brings out artists or brings out storytelling musicians comedians, journalists, authors. And I also think too that it's it's a place that honors the arts in a way that very few, you know, there's hubs of places around the United States that really does honor the artist and if you have a day job and you're working on whatever it is you do, it's not frowned upon at all. It's just the way you do it and the and the and the, and the community itself supports the local scene in a really profound way with beautiful museums and there's a lot of comedy clubs and there's tons of music to see and there's tons of, you know, you ask any touring act in any genre, comedy, music, whatever, they'll tell you Minneapolis is at the top of the list to perform. Okay. Yeah. And there's like a really great jazz club there that called the Dakota that everybody comes through there. Small, beautiful club. So yeah, it's, I think that people are very civic-minded and they really love being there and so they nurture people to stay and they nurture their cultural community so that they have a wealth of things to do and a wealth of ways to grow and they really nurture it. It's pretty cool. And you were born in 61? Yeah. Right? The so day before Barack Obama. No, Barack Obama's one day older than me. Aha, uh-huh, he is. Yes. Okay. By the way, when, when do you think we will see a female president in the U.S.? Probably in 2016. Hillary. I think so. That would be really, really... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool. Yeah. Aura? Yeah, cool. Yes, absolutely. You know, without question. Yes, it'll be fine. I'm not a... I mean, it's like, if Hillary is a centrist Democrat, which she is, I am... Um, a football field to the left. 
Okay, yeah. I'm a football field to the left. So while she's... What, what, what do you don't like about her politics? I don't like her... War? Well, war for sure, number one. And then I don't like the cozy relationship she has with the banking industry. Mm-hmm. I think it's the war and the banksters are the number... She was also... You know, she was the attorney, an attorney for Walmart for a while, you know? And that just represents an encroachment on small town businesses and mom and pop businesses. And and then when you look at Walmart as a whole, I don't really, they sell food. I don't know what that, what's in that food. Is it, you know, corporate farming, you know, all of that stuff. So that part is worrisome. I heard you talk about there. Is it still like that, that when employees of Walmart die. Oh yeah, and was they, it, yeah, there was an insur- you Walmart would take out an insur- a life insurance policy on you so that when you die, Walmart and Walmart is the beneficiary of the life insurance. So when you die, Walmart makes money off your death by being the beneficiary of your life insurance policy that they've taken out on you. That's very very strange. Yeah, so I don't I, that was the case. I remember we did a report on it when I was on the radio yeah. back in 2005. And I don't know if that's still the case. It was called like dead pigeon insurance, or they called it something really offensive as well. But yeah, yeah, you can research that. It was really troubling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and so, but I think she's very good on issues of like reproductive health, women and girls. I'm wondering how she will be environmentally. You know, what's interesting is she was Secretary of State for eight years, and so she couldn't weigh in on political issues. And so what I just find troubling is... I wish there was some a primary with other Democratic candidates so that everybody would be on record and have to explain where they're at and how they would be how they would govern. And I think what's happening is there's been a, a bit of a coronation of Hillary as the candidate where I don't know that it's healthy to say we're just so excited for Hillary, she'll be the person, it'll be great while a woman is groundbreaking, and I'm very excited about about that, that I'll see a woman president in my lifetime and one who shares some values that I hold dear. I really think you should always have politicians have to state how they would govern, get them on record, and then hold them accountable for their stances. Yeah. And if you hear something that feels like uncomfortable for you, to be able to challenge them to push them in a direction that you feel would be better by coalition or yourself or whatever. But so that that's why I kind of give you the the lukewarm on Hillary. Just yeah. I feel like I want a robust debate. When we don't have them, we get stuck with people who disappoint us because <laughs> we didn't want them to because we were just too excited. Tell me about the banking thing issue that you have with our I think she was either on the board or an attorney with Goldman Sachs. I think that she, when it came to housing, I don't know that she was incredibly great on housing and finance issues and prosecuting banks and and the regulation of banks and what all that meant. And so I think she, unlike Elizabeth Warren, who was very forceful on calling out banks on their predatory lending practices, I don't think Hillary's been strong on that. And I think that we really need to look at how we do banking and hold them accountable so that poor, vulnerable people 
don't find themselves way underwater in mortgages they can't afford or tricked into mortgages they can't afford or having banks creating all these junk loans based on nothing and and then putting pensions of people on the line saying, oh, this is a great deal. We'll put the pension of the teachers in a whole bundle of all these other things and then all those other things are crap and then it goes south and underwater. And I think that she hasn't been strong enough on that and I think that she's been a little bit as most Democrats have, and her husband was, in bed with, you know, corporate American banking. They really supported that and boosted it up. Do you call yourself a Democrat? No. Yeah, I mean, I vote Democrat. I would say I'm a Democrat. I'm a Wellstone Democrat. It's it's so strange for me that you have, like, you have two parties. Yeah, pretty much. Why is that? Well, it used to be that they were kind of different. Yeah. <laughs> and it used to be that when you look at the party platforms that don't change that much and you read them down, they read different on, on how they prioritize stuff. But the platforms don't seem to mean much anymore. You know, the Democratic Party used to be fight for robust unions, fight for a strong middle class, fight for a strong public school system. Fight war would be something that we would consider only in the most extreme of circumstances would we commit combat troops and put lives in in harm's way. I tried to read up on that. I noticed that you've been not at war for like 15 years since 1736 or something. (laughs) Yeah. Not at war or at war? Not at war. Yeah, for 15 years. I think. Yeah. And uh, the the longest period is five years, and that was between 1935 and 1940. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah. There's so, a lot of wars. It's a lot of wars. And so when it became that we started shipping jobs overseas and the Democratic Party changed a lot under Bill Clinton. It became more conservative, became more corporate, NAFTA and you know, those international treaties that sent a lot of jobs overseas. And we had a telecommunications bill in 1996 that Bill Clinton himself said was the worst piece of legislation that he ever signed, which allowed giant media companies to consolidate and sort of be the sole broker in a market, which led to being inundated with the same messaging on the radio and the TV and the newspaper. Things like that, subsidies of oil companies that are epic. You know, we just, it's hard to tell the difference in the parties sometimes. And I feel like it's, it's really only social issues where there's a difference. Okay. Whether it's marriage equality or abortion, climate, those are the, those are where we differ. And even in climate, it's not that different. Who's your favorite president so far? Probably FDR. Okay. I know he created uh, the New Deal. And I think that he understood poverty. I think that he was a champion for working class. Eleanor Roosevelt was this amazing feminist asset to him. And so I would have to say. Do you have a relation to Robert Bly? Oh, God, no. I saw that uh, he's from... He is from, from Minnesota. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he ventures into that whole celebrating men yeah. thing yeah. that I am not, you know, men... You just celebrate yourselves all you want. Apparently, society's not celebrated you enough that you have to have small other groups to keep celebrating yourself. But yeah. Back to your 
upbringing. What, yes. what can you tell me about it? You're, you're the youngest of five. Five, okay. Youngest siblings. of five kids. And, and you were raised Catholic? Yes, raised Catholic. That doesn't rhyme well with the Swedish ancestry. Well, here's what's crazy. My Swedish grandfather was Lutheran. And then he moved to Denver for work, and he he hooked up with a whole bunch of Catholic friends, and then he converted. So he escaped, and then he converted to Catholicism, and then he went back to Minnesota, and then and then raised a whole bunch of Catholics. Swedes, we don't have the tradition of circumcision. Uh, I'm not sure that you know this, but there was a million Swedes moving to the U.S. like hundred years ago. Yeah. How did they know about their foreskin? I don't know. I guess they would keep it. I think eventually they just started having circumcisions because it was the societal norm in America. So, yeah. Do you know why you do that? I don't know. It must be a Jewish... Well, traditionally, I don't even know the actually... Because, you know, the ritual of doing it in the Jewish tradition, you know, there's the whole thing and the bris and everything... And I'm actually not sure, I'm not even sure why they do it, why people do it. I'm not either. I don't know why they're cutting little boys' penises. I don't know. No. But they do it. And I think, I think people do it because, I think they kind of just do it and go along with it. Because yeah. it's like, and, and it's, I don't know. Are men okay? Well, I guess I'm not circumcised, so I can't uh, speak for America, but I, I'm okay. Yeah. 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 You're doing Okay. Well, yeah. I think probably you're better for not having somebody snipping around your little thing. Not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I won't go that far. But uh, yeah, I've never, I don't really know. I haven't done a whole lot of research on why we circumcise our boys and uh, the pros and cons of circumcising our boys. Next time uh, I see you, I'm Would gonna... you like me to know that? Would you like me to have well, some information about I, that? Either you or me. <laughs> okay, good. We'll yeah. clear this up because I think your I think your listeners are going to want to know. So, how was your upbringing? It was incredibly conservative, with five kids who were not. My dad was very funny. He often said, which was true, "I raised your kids to have an opinion, and I forgot to tell you it was supposed to be mine." <laughs> and so he raised a bunch of very curious children who also were surrounded by not very conservative society. You know, my parents were a little bit of an enigma. I mean, we even went to the Catholic school we went to was Jesuits who are social justice Catholics. I don't know that that was the intention of my parents. I think it was like, why is our conservatism not seeping into these children? And it's because the second we ventured out of the house, there would be people saying, that makes zero sense. Mm. (laughs) So... The dinner table conversations were just insane because it was my older siblings yelling about the Vietnam War and my dad being a World War II vet, you know, was very patriotic and defending the military and and my siblings being like, you know, my my friends are out there dying for this war that makes no sense. What are we fighting? And Americans were convinced, those who wanted to be convinced of the communist threat were and those who could justify Vietnam did through it's America at risk and then when we found out otherwise the good news is all hell broke loose and people started marching and protesting and but wow 58,000 people had to die just American troops alone never mind the Vietnamese and 
and the Cambodians and Laotians and everything. So, you know, so it was a colorful, lot of, lot of conversation, a lot of yelling, but also really like part of that, my dad was very happy that he raised smart kids who could like, who could fight with him on a level that was about ideas. I think had he been alive today, I think he really would have hated these moronic people who have co-opted the Republican Party, who can't even fight about realistic reasons to not like Obama, Call, you know, saying that he wasn't born here and, and, you know, sort of being racist upon being racist. You know, they can't say the N-word, so they say, he's a Muslim. And, yeah. you know, he grew up in Kenya and he's all these things. And it's like, I think he, and he wasn't much for replacing science with religion, which I think has happened over yeah. the course of a lot of the conservatives that have taken over. They're irrational. Like, if you negotiate at all with anybody from another party, you're, you're literally thrown out of office instead of trying to find common ground at all. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think he would have been really bummed because it's just there's no talking to people anymore. It's insanity. It's like it used to be that I just hated, like, people who literally worshipped corporate America and would just do anything to for the common greed. And now you long for people that were that because at least they were willing to admit that they wanted an economy that ran and that they thought that corporate America could do it. But they also were like the, you know, the Republicans were the party that invented the EPA and that understood that what's, what's that it's the environmental protection agency. Okay. And so that they knew that with growth and industry, the environment was a thing you really needed to pay attention to and how that works. And, that's just all gone now. It's like insane when you hear people saying, why can't women swallow a camera to have a gynecological exam? And you're like, you were elected and you actually believe that the woman's digestive system is attached to a reproductive system. And you're going to make decisions for people like me. Like that's just unacceptable. And what's unacceptable is there's people like you who voted for you who actually also think that. So how do we marginalize those people? Because I don't think we're getting rid of them. But I think we have to be louder and find more smart people. But in a system that is clearly geared towards taking people down if they're smart or challenge religion as a whole, you're just screwed. But this is a really religious country, isn't it? It is. Very religious country. Well, it's a Christian nation. It's yeah. a, you know, and so if you practice another religion, Judaism and Christianity, we will consider Muslims are not afforded the same respect as far as um, when it comes to religion. In fact, it's it's treated as some kind of, you might as well just replace it with the word terrorist, the way we treat Muslims in this country. And, you know, I'm not a particular religious person. And so, you know, I just feel like, why is it at all part of our public policy in the least? I don't, I don't understand it. Why can't yeah. people just worship and, and then have their belief system and use that to be a better person. But legislating on religious grounds is kind of bizarre. You say that you're not a very religious person. Are you religious at all? I don't know what I am, you know? Is there a God? I don't know. You know, I feel like my morality is based on looking at the human condition and figuring out if I can, in some small or large way, make it better for people. Was that informed by the teachings I was brought up with? 
maybe. Do I still believe that? Yeah, you know, I'm guessing Jesus, a, a person like named Jesus, walked the earth and did good things, and people looked at him as like a guy that did cool stuff because people wrote about him. I don't think a whole bunch of people made that up. Is he the son of God? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I kind of feel like. Do you care? I mean, I care in the sense that it's used to make people's lives worse by bad by the worshippers of these people seem to be the worst fucking people, you know. And then the people who are good and who actually like through their religious upbringing are helping the poor and not being judgmental and like in soup kitchens and you know just like being incredible social justice movement people, awesome. But I feel like we never hear from those people. I feel like the people in front of the megaphone are the ones who are have this crazy fire and brimstone God who's just like, seems like the worst God ever. I mean, it's like, there was a news story last week about a pediatrician in the state of Michigan who met with a lesbian couple and their one-week-old baby and said that she prayed to God and then realized she couldn't treat the baby because of the lesbian lifestyle. And it's like, I don't know what kind of God you pray to who says, yeah, don't take care of a baby, but that's a shitty God. And, you know, like, and that's just one example. But, like, in that, I feel like it's constant, whether just always considering weirdness and using God as some tool to oppress people and to be an asshole and to treat people like shit and to make laws that just are discriminate against people. So it's a bummer because, and that's why I just don't know why it's in public life. You know, if you want to have a church and you can have your church that doesn't allow people in it, have your church mm. and believe your weirdness and, you know, have that. But don't ask my tax dollars to fund it and don't ask me to give you a break because of whatever. Have it, run it, have it be private, have your money go to it and let the rest of us not have to deal with you. Louis C.K. has a really funny bit about... Uh, everything? Uh, about everything? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. He's so brilliant. He is. But he has a great bit about not believing in in God. And it made me think that if you say that God doesn't exist, you're just as crazy as the the religious people. Yeah. I mean, there's there's unexplained things which I love. And I'm I'm a big fan of mystery and of wonder. But if there is a God, I, I have to believe that this God wouldn't have created or been like hateful or created all the awfulness that people create the awfulness. So it's a very, it's a tricky question. And it's funny how, you know, Catholicism is like that thing that's just drummed into your head and the guilt and the terrified you're going to go to hell kind of thing. It's like very real. And so until you confess, until you confess. And so it's like, Do I hedge because I've been so browbeaten by the Catholic Church that if I unequivocally say, yeah, there's not a God, that that is it for me? Like, fiery death. Dumb. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, it's, I do consider it. My sisters and I laugh about it a lot because it was drummed into us profoundly. I heard you say in some interview, I might have un- misunderstood you, but you weren't politically aware growing up, were you? Not particularly. The politics happened around me in my house. You know, they were fighting and there was discussion. But my politics was rooted in me simply being a young girl and just trying to pursue things that I found enjoyable or maybe I thought would be interesting and having it 
having a barrier put up simply because I was a young girl. And then that, like, for example, I wanted to uh, deliver papers, the newspaper, and my mom wouldn't let me deliver the newspaper because it was too, I shouldn't be able to get on my bike early in the morning before the sun came up. It wouldn't be safe. And I said, why is it safe for a boy? And she said, it just is, you know, it's just not safe for girls. And I'm like, why do we live in a world where it's not safe for girls to deliver papers? And then nobody could answer me. It wasn't like, well, we're working towards that. You know, it was just like, it just isn't. And then I found that annoying. I wanted to be an altar boy. You know, I wanted to serve mass because I thought, like, I liked it. I liked the idea of, like, assisting the priest. I also liked the fact that I didn't really like babysitting. And that was sort of your financial options before you were old enough to work in a job was babysitting. And I'm not good with kids. I don't particularly like babies. I don't want to babysit. Then I couldn't do that because I was a girl for no other. And there was no explanation there. Literally, the priest said to me, it's called altar boy. So you can't be it. And I was like, what if it was called altar person? And then he looked at me with a panicked face. Now there are young girls who are servers and that's changed. But like every step of the way, when, when things couldn't be explained to me, if things could be explained. There was a, a chance of making a joke there, but my English isn't good enough. But <laughs> but about the priests not being interested. In uh, yeah, yeah, adults, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, that was the other reason I did later on as an adult wonder if it was that you know, I'm not interested in you. So, you know, we want to keep this to attractive young boys only in dresses. So um, if I wanted to do something like uh, drive a car, and it was like, well, you can't drive a car yet because you're not old enough, you know. Oh, there's a law that says you have to be 15 and you have to take lessons. Oh, okay. So if you could explain to me why I couldn't do something and it made sense across the board, I understood it. But there was way too many instances where it just seemed like that's just not something girls do. And I was a curious kid. I often say that I feel like curiosity for me is a vital organ and that if I if I was tamped down by that I would I would really be paralyzed as a kid. I would couldn't understand if I couldn't explore and I couldn't at least try something and fail if it wasn't going to harm me. Why weren't you letting me? Don't swim out that far, you know, and then I would see boys swimming out that far and I was a good swimmer and I took lessons and and so I think that my politics were informed by people saying no to me as a woman. And then I was like, if they're saying no to just like this middle class white girl, like what's happening to people who are, don't have the advantages I have, you know, women of color, gay folks. And so I was like, if I'm going to fight for Hasidic Jew women. Oh, they got nothing. No. But they're also so, culturally it's so interesting because you, they can keep in their own community so profoundly that I think generations of staying within that role, I wonder if they even know to challenge it unless you get out into the world and That's experience something. Let's skip to the question about you finding stand-up comedy. Ah. When was the first time you, you were on stage? The first time I was on stage, somebody dared me to do it, a friend. What was sort of interesting, I'd always been sort of cynical and kind of a, I would crack jokes and look at the world through a jaundiced eye. But I never considered stand-up comedy because when I saw the women who were doing it on television, they didn't look like me. And they were older, they were married, they talked about their husbands, and they were very old school. 
And I was like, well, I don't have those insights. So is it even an avenue for me? And then I saw George Carlin on TV. And I was like, I'm more like him. Like, I love the way he talks about the Catholic Church and family and society. And I was like, that his life experiences are closer to mine than the, the women who at the time were I was exposed to. And so I thought, well, if he can do it, I guess I can do it. And so I went to an open mic. and How old were you? I was 20, 23? Yeah, 23, I think. And were you in college? No, no, no. I was 21. I was 21. Yes, I was in college. Okay. I was 21, and I did five minutes in an open mic. And your adrenaline gets you through your first time on stage. And so the audience is kind of supportive, and the MC tells you it's your first time, and so the audience is nice. And it goes really fast. And your some of your jokes, are you get laughs, and some you don't. But You did prepare, like... I did prepare material. I got enough laughs to where I was like, I totally want to try this again. And then the second time I did it, I got zero laughs. I was kind of cocky. I had a confidence that was unearned. And so then I was like... Why does that always happen to always, everybody? Always, right? Yeah. Somewhere uh, in the like first 10, it's going to be like that. Yeah. And so then I was like, well, I did pretty good one time, and I did horribly another time. So I have to try it a third time to see if I'm good or bad at this. And I was exactly in the middle. So I was like, well, now I have to do it a fourth time to see what happens and then I think I was kind of good and then I was like well and then 30 years later and then cut to now I know the stories I still don't know where I'm at I still don't know if I'm any good but uh, yeah so it's a constant um, it's a constant growth process you're never and what I like about it is it's one of those things that you're you kind of stay in check because you're only as good as your last performance and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's awful And it can be that you had a whole bunch of people who just don't think the way you do. And my material is mostly politically charged. So I've already made a decision to come on stage with a belief system that at least 40% of my audience won't agree with, sometimes more. Mm. So it's not really whether or not you're good or bad. It's really whether or not you're persuasive. And sometimes you can make people laugh who disagree with you because... You point out the hypocrisy of politicians, not necessarily of the way that you think. You know, I can't, I can't leave out people who I would vote for just because I'd vote for them. You know, a good political satirist has to be trusted. And the way you're trusted is by when you see somebody who's been given some power, either use it stupidly or in an evil manner, it's your job to call them out. So that's the trick. Why weren't you the star of The Daily Show? Because the show itself, in a satire, to make it work, soup to nuts, it has to satirize the entire genre, right? And so the genre of media is, at the helm of that, is a white male. And so you have to put a white male in that chair Mm -hmm. so that when you turn the sound down it looks like the thing you're making fun of. Like you wouldn't know if it was real or fake. And so that was really it, which I was fine with. That was fine. So, yeah, that was why. But now I think there can be 
many ways to satirize media because we don't really get information anymore from just a guy sitting at a desk. You know, people make these really important, informed decisions about their lives from chat shows and commentators and all of that. So now the satire should be more full, should be women doing it and, you know, people of color. I think now we're ready because we have a media that is just media. It's not news. I just call it all media that is full of all of those faces and those faces can all be satirized now. And so now's the time to get women in those places and people of color in those places because satire means different things to different people too. You know, we've come to a place and it's so interesting because with Charlie Hebdo and all these things and what is satire and is satire of the privileged, you know, is it a, is it an art form of the privileged because people can say things that are racially charged and say, but it's satire. I was embodying a person who was saying that. And for years we were able, people did satire because the people they were satirizing didn't have a voice to say how they felt about it. And so it was very easy to sort of be like, I pat myself on the back because I'm the person who sees the hypocrisy and I'm going to embody it. And it's like, and then how do the people that you supposedly think that you're helping expose the racism or the sexism about feel now, especially since we have so much profound sexism, racism, and homophobia informing in, in real life media. Right. So it's harder for the satirist to satirize things that are like actual are on actual media and actual news. You know, when people are actually reporting, the president doesn't have a birth certificate and he wasn't born here and he's really a Kenyan. And the cover of magazines have the, a black president with a bone in his nose. Or there's women who are like Charlie Hebdo has, you know, welfare queens and Boko Haram in their magazine. And it's satire. You know, that was interesting to talk about, like, when people said, are you Charlie? And I had very many friends, black women friends saying, I'm not, I don't like the cartoons they do. You know, I'm never going to say anybody should be shot for their satire, obviously. But it doesn't mean that I am Charlie because I would never work at a magazine or find what they call satire funny or helpful towards furthering the empowerment of black women. And I was like, okay. And then they were like, are you Charlie? And I said, I think I am Charlie because I actually get my life threatened by exposing anti-abortion zealots who kill doctors when they go to church. So I actually, if the parallel is taking on people who have a history of violence and who are scary and who actually attack people who are activists in the movement, yeah, I guess I am. And then they were like, oh, yeah, you actually are. And I don't even... So it's such an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. What satire is, where it's going, what is it in a new landscape where everybody has an opinion and then has access to get that opinion into the world. It changes things a lot. And so what I say to everybody is, everybody should be saying whatever the hell everybody wants to say. But you're going to have a different set of blowback than you had before. And you got to just prepare yourself for what that means. There's going to be people who let you know they hate it. There's going to be people who want to try to silence you. I feel like silencing people is always a bad thing because 
then you really don't know the world with which you live. You really don't know where those voices are. And when you silence people, you know, really the people that get silenced are the the marginalized people. Corporations never seem to suffer from people crying for censorship. Would you like to recommend something? I would recommend going to my uh, our our website ladypartsjustice.com. It's fun, it's funny, and it it exposes the the state of reproductive justice in America, which is pretty sorry, but instead of lecturing folks, we use humor to expose really creepy people, and it's like a really fun way to learn about the state of reproductive equality in America. Very good. And who do you think I should interview on Morbit? Have you interviewed Sarah Silverman? No, I haven't. I'd love to. Yeah. And you're the second person that says that I should interview her. Yeah. Sarah, you have to come on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. That's Liz Winstead, folks. And the website address was ladypartsjustice.com. And if you want to check out Liz on Twitter, her name there is L-I-Z-Z-W-I-N-S-T-E-A-D. That's Liz Winstead. And this podcast is called Varvetpod on Twitter. That's V-A-R-V-E-T-P-O-D on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Thanks engineer slash editor Lovisa Olsson. Thanks producer Christina Jollingbiro. And thanks Uniforms for the dedicated for sponsoring the show. Talk to you in two weeks. Until then, bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.